Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Broback. I'm Kemper Donovan. And this week we are returning to our beloved Monsieur Poirot. We are back again to our labors of Hercules. So uh, what are we covering uh, this week, Kemper? So we are covering, of course, two of these short stories. The first is The Horses of Diomedes, and the second is The Girdle of Hippolyta. Shall we start with the publication history on The Horses of Diomedes, Catherine? We shall. So it was first published uh, in standalone form in The Strand in June 1940 in the UK. And... Sometime later, in January of 1945, in Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine in the U.S., and in the U.S., we've seen this again and again, and we're going to get it with our second story, too. It's called The Case of the Drug Peddler. A whole lot of drugging going on in this story. So, so, so much. Um, And it's like less intriguing, although perhaps more accurate than the horses of Diomedes. (laughs) So um, it will, of course, then be published in The Labors of Hercules uh, in 1947 by Dodd Mead in the U.S. and by Collins Crime in the U.K., both in the same year. Fantastic. Well, now it's time for a little bit of Kemper storytelling. I am turning to my Dolaire's Book of Greek Myths to uh, refer fresh our collective recollection as to the original story of the horses of Diomedes. And yes, this is a case where Christie goes very metaphorical here. It's an interesting choice, actually, what how she chooses to tell this specific story. So here is the horses of Diomedes as told in my book of Greek myths. Far to the north there lived a king whose name was Diomedes. He was a very inhospitable king and had trained his four mares to devour all strangers who came to his land. Now Eurystheus sent Heracles to capture the four man-eating mares and bring them back alive. Heracles traveled to the north, slew King Diomedes, and threw him to his own mares. When the mares had eaten the evil king, they were so tame that they let Heracles drive them back to the gates of Mycenae. Which seems a little convenient. I'm not sure why eating an evil tyrant would make a group of four horses that ate human flesh more tame. But hey, that's why he's Hercules. You, <laughs> yeah, you'd think that it would just only like encourage their lust for blood. Right, like incite them even more, drive them even even wilder. But yeah, I mean, this and this is very much a story about the dangers and the ill effects of drug taking and the idea that drug addiction is a similarly violent and destructive process to the human body, um, perhaps even on the level of a horse tearing and eating into your flesh. It's a strong anti-drug statement. Nancy Reagan would definitely approve. (laughs) Say yes to your life. And when it comes to drugs and alcohol, just say no. Just say no. (laughs) Right. I mean, that's essentially the message of this story is just say no, because the war on drugs obviously went so well. Extremely well. Extremely well. It went about (laughs) as well as LBJ's war on poverty. All right. So moving right along. um, Moving along. The victim is a little bit of a complicated question, I think. We'll list one, Miss Sheila Grant, and she's this very, very pretty dark-haired wisp of a thing who has had a bad run-in with some cocaine at a party, and she survives, but barely. Right. She's the putative victim, let us say. Right. She is portrayed, uh, certainly, as the victim for the first part of the story, and perhaps through the entire story. I don't want to spoil. 
All right. Do we have any suspects, Catherine? We really only have one presented, and it's Anthony Tony Hawker, who is a sort of rich, loose, ne'er-do-well, who's also handsome, but he's rumored to be the dope peddler, as it were. Right. Yeah, I mean, his last name is Hawker, you know, just kind of... Mm, I know. A little on the nose there, Agatha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are we in the Stymphalian birds again? The world as it appears to be. Let's get into this. Poirot is called Late One Night by Dr. Michael Stoddart, who is a smart young physician who Poirot likes. And Dr. Stoddart begs him to please come make a late night call, not to his house, but to the muse behind his house. And Poirot really likes Stoddart. And, you know, even though he is stodgy, fussy Poirot, he also likes a mystery and he's intrigued. So he gets himself up and is basically prowling around this muse area. Not the first muse we've seen him prowl around in, right? Reminded (laughs) me of Murder in the Muse very much. And yeah, it's the early hours of the morning and he's intrigued and he arrives uh, at the place in question. And what does he find, Catherine? Well, he finds um, the scene of what seemed to have been a very ruckus party that has clearly taken place and apparently gone awry. There are smashed and spilled drinks everywhere, cigarettes put out anywhere you want to name it, broken furniture. It also turns out that the hostess, Mrs. Patience Grace, her name, she perhaps does not live up to. It sounds, said Poirot, a charming old world name. Yeah, not so much because also during this party, she has shot a vagrant out the window. Which, by the way, I just keep on having to tell Monty anecdotes on this podcast recently, but that too is taken from life. That is definitely something that um, Monty, Agatha Christie's ne'er-do-well older brother, in his later years when they sort of had to take him in and figure out what to do with him essentially before they you know carted him off uh first up north and then i believe abroad in france where various nurses and whatnot took care of him he was holed up with agatha and or it might have been either with madge or agatha or perhaps both of them I, i can't remember exactly where he was but he was in england and they received word one day when they were out you know leading their productive lives that um your brother seems to be shooting at people out of his bedroom window with a revolver. And they, you know, asked him why was he, he was doing that. And he was just doing it for fun, just for kicks. And he was like, well, I wouldn't have actually hit anyone. <laughs> right. Well, Mrs. Patience Grace was upset with somebody else, except she was also drunk and high on cocaine. So she fired very widely. She did not deliberately shoot the vagrant. Right. Right. But they end up calling Dr. Stoddard. And he ends up bandaging up the man on the street. And then the other men at the party pay him off, not Dr. Stoddart, but the vagrant. Yes, the vagrant who was almost killed. Mm -hmm. Yes, Um, merely a flesh wound. So he's gone. Everybody else is gone. So he's still treating Mrs. Patience Grace, who is coming down from her cocaine high and is gone wackadoodle. Mm Mm-hmm. That's a technical medical term. Yep, you got that out and, of the uh, Merck manual. Mm-hmm, yes, I did. Also, though, Poirot swiftly realizes that Dr. Stoddart isn't quite saying something, and it's actually because 
he's also treating this young woman who was essentially collapsed. And Poirot, being Papa Poirot, senses that this is the real reason that Dr. Stoddard has asked him there. It's this girl named Sheila Grant. She's very young. She seems to have gotten in with a bad crowd. She's the one of four daughters of a sort of well-respected Anglo-Indian general. Never seen one of those in a Christie before. <laughs> no, not ever. But she's now, she's she's hanging out with like the bad crowd and he has met her before and she's charming and beautiful and he doesn't call the police, which he should, because he doesn't want her name dragged through it. Yeah, I mean, so it seems as though she went to the party and, you know, did some coke and collapsed. And if this gets about, she'll be in big trouble. And clearly the doctor is smitten with her and wants to help her out. So he asked Poirot to get to the bottom of who is supplying her these drugs, who is behind all this drug taking and risky behavior on Sheila's part so that he can effectively rescue her from all that. And, you know, her name is Sheila, by the way. And once you find that out, you can almost bet that she's going to have dark hair and pale skin mm-hmm. and, and you know, be a sort of Irish beauty along the mystical Celtic lines. And she is indeed <laughs> uh, yeah. very, very pretty, slim with a girlish figure, dark hair, a long pale face. And young, very young. And you know when Papa Poirot sees a young girl in distress, all of his protective instincts kick in in a fatherly way, not in, you know, any any sort of a uh, more nefarious way than that. Of course, this is Papa Poirot we're talking about. So, Although Dr. Stoddard has a romantic interest. Oh, of course he does. And and Papa Poirot knows that he can potentially bring these two lovers together uh, if he plays his cards right. So he is on this very unusual case that has nothing to do with a murder and not all that much to do with a puzzle either because there's no murder. So it's really uh, an unusual story, but like most, if not all of these labors of Hercules stories, you know, one that is quite well told actually, and pleasant to read. So Poirot goes to this part of the country where Sheila Grant lives with her three sisters and her father. It's called Martinshire, although perhaps that's actually Martinshire, given the way that those pronunciations go in the UK. It's M-E-R-T-O-N-S-H-I-R-E. So we'll just leave it at that. I would never pretend that uh, we are pronunciation experts on this podcast, especially when it comes to proper nouns in and around the UK. But Martinshire is a wealthy area in the country, and um, Poirot goes under the guise of visiting an old friend, Lady Carmichael, and she's a big old gossip, and she immediately catches on to the true purpose of Poirot's visit. And she tells him that General Grant is well-known, and his beautiful daughters are well-liked, but they are a bit wild. There are four Four of them, remember, there were four mayors of King Diomedes. I see what you're doing here, Agatha. She also tells him some hot goss about a Mrs. Larkin, and she says, oh, why don't you just tell me? You must be here because you want to figure out if Mrs. Larkin murdered her husband, right? She also theorizes that perhaps Anthony Hawker, again, who is our kind of only suspect, perhaps he's the Brighton trunk murderer. <laughs> Not the first time that uh, Christy has made tangential reference to a trunk murderer. Right. Which is why I now know that that's not referring to the trunk of a car, because that is a boot in the UK, but it's actually referring to a murderer who cuts up bodies and puts them in suitcases. And there there was at least one real trunk murderer, if not several. So 
the more you know. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. So there's obviously a lot going on in Martinshire slash Mertonshire. <laughs> right. And so Poirot uses his visit to the Lady Carmichael to go visit General Grant. And General Grant, as befits his status as a retired Anglo-Indian general, he lives in this like opulent house that seems too opulent, really. This is maybe our only clue, not to just jump ahead, but I'd say that the fact that he's living in this, at one point it was just country, but lately it's become fashionable country, and so it's quite expensive, Mm -hmm. and that point is made a few times. And so he's living in this opulent house. He has sort of um, Indian staff working for him. And lots of Indian artifacts, right? Yeah, the house is just like crammed up with stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think we, you know, we're not going to have a proper clues section in our summary of the story because there aren't really any clues per se. It's just not the way that this is structured. But I think this is a point where we can bring up one clue and there will be one more to come in a moment. But, you know, I think we could bring up a meta clue here, which we already alluded to, which is that Christy does love to have the character of an Anglo-Indian colonel. And more often than not, that character is extremely extremely benign but now for anyone who's a stodgy old boy yeah stodgy old boy the pukka sahib right Mm -hmm. um that phrase i've only really come across in christy but she uses it constantly and um for anyone who hasn't read the Siddiford mystery, please fast forward about 30 seconds. But, you know, our big meta clue here is that we saw Christie do something with this character to great effect in that novel, which was to make him the murderer. <laughs> and it was very surprising because usually that character is, is, you know, we're trained to think of him and it is always a he. We're trained to think of him as background filler. But in her brilliance, she has tricked us before. So maybe she'll trick us again. Maybe not. That's the, you know, that's the fun of the fact that she created so many stories, we don't necessarily have a way of knowing unless perhaps there's another little mini clue coming our way. So with that little enticement, let's move things along here. General Grand is uh, laid up, right? In his house with gout. Gout, yes. So he has uh, sort of bandages around his leg and it's like propped up on a table and he sort of rants about the doctor's. And Poirot mentions, you know, that he's worried about the general's daughters and that drugs are involved and cocaine, of all things. The general goes apoplectic and Poirot's like, no, 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 the one thing that you have to do for me is you can't say anything. Right. And then Poirot gets up to leave and trips over all of the massive amounts of Indian artifacts that are sitting on every possible surface. And he balances himself on General Grant before leaving. Right. And earlier in this tete-a-tete that they have, it's really not that long of a scene, but it is it is the crucial one here, right in the middle of the story, when the general is talking about how his doctor, you know, won't allow him to eat anything that he likes, and he is expressing his distaste over steamed fish. He says, mm-hmm. steamed fish, pa. And then Christie writes, in his indignation, the general incautiously moved his bad foot and uttered a yelp of agony at the twinge that ensued. 
So, you know, when you have gout, if, if, if you truly do have gout, you know, and, and you move the affected joint at all, it's extremely painful. You know, that's why people with gout are laid up. It creates like essentially crystals in the joints. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's like I mean, it's it's like having a kidney stone in your joints. Basically, right. I mean, it's a similar kind of issue, right? It's the buildup of uric acid. But I'll be honest with you, when I read at the end of the scene uh, that, and this is the way that Christy writes it, because she writes it in her skillful way as to the blocking of what Poirot does there when he trips. He got up, tripped over a heavily carved small table, regained his balance with a clutch at the general, and then murmured, a thousand pardons, and may I beg of you, general, you understand, beg of you to say nothing whatever about all this to your daughters. And then they proceed to have a few lines of dialogue after that. I didn't pick up on the significance of that moment completely, but I really did have a moment where I was like, hmm, something seems weird there. Like, I know that she's trying to tell me something there, but I'm not exactly sure what. Well, it's because Poirot is anything but klutzy. Yes, he never makes, and we've seen this in, in uh, especially short stories before, if he drops something or he pretends not to be able to see something so well. We see Miss Marple do it too. Whenever Miss Marple all of a sudden, say, drops a handbag and someone, you know, a maid perhaps has to hand her a mirror mm. after having <laughs> just handled a sticky candy, say, uh, something like that. Like these are never accidents, especially in the short stories, because she doesn't have much time to waste. So she's not going to have them trip or, you know, do something clumsy for nothing. So having spelt it out as we just did, I mean, this is our other little mini clue. It's extremely odd that the general didn't cry out in pain when Poirot used him to balance himself. So he must be lying about his gout. It's also, and Poirot brings this up later, but I mean, does anyone really have gout in the middle of the 20th century? It's it's all very Victorian. <laughs> I mean, I think people still do get gout, but yeah, it is, it is pretty much commonly thought of. It's, it was called the King's Disease, right? Yeah, we can kind of pair that with the idea that with all of these, you know, this this servant and these artifacts from India, this feels a little bit perhaps like a stage, like this mm-hmm. is not real. And perhaps this is all because the general is pretending to be someone who he isn't. Christy, though, really does give us those clues pretty expertly in the short story. She's not always as good at hiding the clues and and hiding the ball, so to speak, in the short stories. But I think she actually is in this one. I did not completely see the quote unquote solution coming. It's a little abrupt, so we'll get there in a second. But first, Poirot um, ends up at the house of... Mrs. Larkin, where yet another party is happening. At that party, sitting by herself in a windowsill, he runs into Pam Grant, one of the other Grant sisters, except she's fair and angelic looking, while Sheila's dark. Another little clue there. Yeah. Interesting that these sisters don't look related. Mm-hmm. And so Poirot and Pam talk about all the sort of ne'er-do-wells and mostly about how awful Tony is. And Pam keeps bringing it up about like how Tony is such a bad egg and, you know, all of this. And she's really worried. Sheila's like out, um, you know, with the hounds with him. <laughs> and um, And then Sheila and Tony show up. And um, what they say is that his flask ran out of booze, so they've come back. Tony sort of has like a tete-a-tete with 
Mrs. Larkin. And Sheila keeps watching him, and Sheila's clearly uncomfortable. Pam's clearly uncomfortable. Poirot is a little weirded out at this point. He basically gives them a drugs lecture. Just say no. Yeah, I mean, he's been talking to Sheila about the ill effects of drug taking and how it can just destroy one's life. And Pam seems horrified. You know, Sheila seems remorseful. She just has this very uncomfortable, apologetic demeanor throughout. Well, right. And also she's really concerned that Dr. Stoddart hates her. And, and Poirot assures her that, no, of course he, he doesn't hate her. Papa Poirot, of course, always has his eye on that matchmaking. Yeah. Poirot departs. And as he departs, what does he find out, Kemper? So what happens as Poirot is leaving is that first, Pam Grant, Sheila's sister, says to her, Sheila, like she says in this really sharp voice. And then Sheila herself whispers faintly, so faintly that Poirot can barely hear it, the flask. So Poirot says goodbye to Mrs. Larkin. He goes out in the hall, and then he sees this hunting flask lying on a table with a crop and a hat. He picks it up. It has the initials AH on it. It's obviously Anthony Hawker's flask, the supposedly empty flask that they needed to fill with booze. And he shakes it gently, and there's no sound of liquid in it, but he then unscrews the top because Poirot is thorough and shameless when it comes to (laughs) butting into other people's affairs and belongings. And uh, yeah, that flask is not empty. It's full of white powder. So that would be a flask full of cocaine. Oh, yes. (laughs) And it seems as though, before we get to the world as it actually is, that Anthony Hawker, louche, 'er ne'er-do-well in this rather tacky milieu of Martinshire. I mean, it is an unusually cheap, tawdry mise-en-scene for a Christie story. Do you know what I mean? But I mean, yeah, I do exactly know what you mean, but it's really weird because they're all rich people. They're rich, but she's telling us over and over again how tacky they are. And it feels tacky. Like when Poirot goes to that first party and it's the, the dregs of the party, to me, I was picturing like a frat house that's been trashed, you know? And then this hunting party, you know, they're coming in and being like, oh, we need more booze. And even, you know, the general with his four daughters is like, oh God, they're on coke? Oh no, what am I going to do? And he's laid up with gout among all these Indian artifacts. It's just, it's all very distasteful in a way that that you don't really always find with Christie. There's usually at least some, if not quaintness to the setting, affection. There's an affection usually drawn as to setting or at least some part of it, but definitely not here. I would almost say that an interesting comparison to this for many reasons is Parallel End House. Mm-hmm. And the thing with Parallel End House is that they are sort of living in the last dregs of glamour. Yeah, but it's at least like dilapidated glamour. Well, no, right, I think there's right, something right. actually kind of fabulous and glam about. No, 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 that's, House, right? no. So my so my point about that is that these are these people who were still part of a different era, and it has just fallen into disrepair, and then now they have all these sort of cocaine issues and they're not going to be the bright young things because the world's falling apart around them. And, you know, they're in this glamorous house and they are people who were once of a certain level in society and Mm. just, it's sort of a fall from grace. This is a little bit like, oh no, this is just icky. 
Yeah, no, it's true. This is like, well, it's, you know, it's a generation or two later and it's like, yeah, no, that's over. Like now we don't even have the appearance or, or like it's it's 10 years later. Right. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. And yes, true. And how important are those 10 years? You know, that's really true because we're in world war two, the thirties has happened and it's just kind of like the party is truly over and we don't even have faded elegance anymore. The elegance has been uh, obliterated. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, it's true. You know, and it seems at this point as though it is exactly what it appears, right? Which is that Anthony Hawker is a drug dealer and he has been getting Sheila addicted and he's just a terrible person and these are all terrible people and that's why he's hanging around with Mrs. Larkin and it's not really clear how Poirot is going to extricate her from all of this. Uh, But this is an Agatha Christie short story and even though it's not a puzzle mystery, so to speak, there is some deception going on here, isn't there? Some notion of appearances being deceiving. Yeah, because we cut really abruptly then. This is a little bit where this story gets slightly weird. Because we cut then to Poirot talking to Sheila at Lady Carmichael's house. He essentially does his grand denouement, except it's with one person on a terrace. It seems like he's just trying to convince her to get away from these people. You know, you're young and you should really yeah, and we, get away and right. Dr. Stoddard cares about you. Yeah, and we need to like set you on the right path and we need to deal with him first. Sheila says, I'll do anything you say. I'll talk to the others. I don't suppose Dr. Stoddard will ever speak to me again. He says, on the contrary, both Dr. Stoddard and I are prepared to help you. You can trust us, but there's one thing that must be done. There's one person who must be destroyed. And you and your sisters are the only ones who can do that. You know, they're the only ones with the evidence to destroy him. And and that's when she says, you mean my father, and then he lets the resolution rip here, which is not your father, mademoiselle. Did I not tell you that Hercule Poirot knows everything? Mm-hmm. So the solution here is that, of course, General Grant is not the father to these four different looking <laughs> young women. Sheila Grant is actually Sheila Kelly, a, quote, persistent young shoplifter who was sent to a reformatory some years ago. And she was approached by this General Grant and offered the post of a quote-unquote daughter. And Poirot says there would be plenty of money, plenty of fun, a good time. All you had to do was to introduce the snuff to your friends, always pretending that someone else had given it to you. Your sisters, in quotes again, were in the same case as yourself. So interestingly, and this is the one twist on this story that I do like, the victim here is Anthony Hawker because Anthony yeah. Hawker is the mark. He's the one who's being plied with cocaine and right. who's basically going to be led down a horrible path that will lead to the destruction of his life by taking all this cocaine. Sheila is the one who's doing it. But I suppose because she is young and being beautiful probably doesn't hurt. And Dr. Stoddart, who is an upstanding person, is interested in rehabilitating her. Poirot got the sense from her that she didn't like what General Grant had hired her to do. So that not only could Anthony Hawker be rehabilitated, but in a way, Sheila was also a victim, even though she was knowingly doing. Well, I mean, of course, of course. Well, I mean, of course she was a victim. She was a teenage girl who had been sort of like seemingly disowned from her family who got poached out of a reformatory school and yeah, I mean, do we know he, she was a teenager? I mean, it's directly said that she looks incredibly young. 
Yeah, I suppose that's true. I, yeah, I think we can fairly assume that when he recruited her, she was a teenager. Fair. Right. I mean, this is common, unfortunately, to this day. You see it with sex trafficking, too. Yes, I wasn't sure if we were going to go there, but I suppose why not? Yes, I think it's hard to read the story, especially in the 21st century, only because I think we're at least to a certain extent, I hope, a little bit more aware of these things that have always gone on, but of course continue to go on. And yes, I think there is a lot of that in terms of these criminal rings being run by men, but with the quote unquote help of women who are being victimized in a very significant way. There are different gradations, right, of victimization happening, both in this story and in that situation. Right. But I mean, like he has control over all of their money. They're living in his house. Yeah. You know, there's a real dark angle to this story if you even bother for one second to think about what is actually being told here. Absolutely. I mean, he's this older man is living with these four women who, you know, have these criminal pasts and are completely dependent on him. What kind of emotional and physical abuse is probably happening here? Yeah. It's like really, really dark. Really dark. I mean, it's, it's actually a perfect example of one of these stories in which Christy just presents a situation And she does not really delve into the darkness of where it almost certainly exists. But if you choose to go there, it's actually quite powerful. But you could also choose not to. And she often leaves that up to the reader in ways that other authors do not. Right. No, and Sheila has a certain haunted quality that comes across in various places in the short story where you kind of are like, ooh, something is not good here. Yes, absolutely. There's a sort of sensitivity. I will say, I did not appreciate the last couple lines of the story, though. They take away a little bit from that sense, just in that Poirot and Stoddard are speaking. And um, I think she's just a little bit also concerned with really bringing home the comparison between these four daughters and the four mayors of Diomedes. And Poirot says, I have no doubt that your theories will work admirably where Miss Sheila Kelly is concerned. And, um, you know, he's talking about basically being able to rehabilitate Sheila Kelly and perhaps the other three women who have been victimized by General Grant. So Dr. Sutter says the others too. And Poirot replies, the others, perhaps it may be. The only one I'm sure about is the little Sheila. You will tame her, not a doubt of it. In truth, she eats out of your hand already. I literally wrote in the margin, ew, for (laughs) she eats out of your hand already. I was like, okay, like I'm imagining a horse eating an apple. I know. know. If you've ever fed a horse, like, you know how they always teach you to keep your hand flat so they don't grab onto your fingers. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a tactile sensation. You're not going to forget if you've ever done it. It's immediately what I thought of. And I was just like, no, 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 no. I don't want to end the story on that note. The only other thing I just want to mention is that as usual, especially with these stories, They're told in a series of sections, each of them marked with a Roman numeral, just much more split up into discrete sections than a normal Christie story. I've definitely found that to be a pattern in these Mm -hmm. Labors of Hercules stories. This one is very, very split up. It's very split up. And um, sometimes that's not necessarily a great thing because it can make the narrative feel a little choppy. Like, I I agree with you, that resolution feels a little choppy, but it also allows for some great opening and closing lines. And Christie 
Christie had one of the greatest opening lines for section three that I've come across in any of these stories. And it reads thus, it has been said with or without justification for the statement that everyone has an aunt in Torquay. <laughs> I know. Well, and everyone has a cousin in Martinshire. And then, yes, she goes on to say, and everyone has a cousin in Martinshire. But, you know, a little bit of an in-joke there, obviously, since Agatha Christie grew up in Torquay and is an aunt herself. It has the flavor, obviously, of it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of fortune must yeah. be one of a wife. I just, I, I love a good Austin-esque opening line. I'd never miss no, an opportunity it- to... Uh, draw I know, a parallel no, it, between Christy and Austin. <laughs> it was it was very good. I really appreciated it. This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. Do you hear that sound, Catherine? What sound would that be, Kemper? The sound of delight coming from our listeners, quite a few of them, I might add, who have discovered the many joys of the hit mobile puzzle game, Best Fiends. Well, you know, I feel them on that. I do indeed. You know, Howie, uh, the lizard, and I, the lizard has become a full-fledged wizard, I have to say, now. He's a wizard lizard now? He's a wizard lizard, and so, you know, we've just been moseying our way through the recent puzzles, which um, have Halloween themes, which is very exciting. (gasps) Oh, that is fantastic. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we've said this before, but it's always worth repeating that the game updates regularly, so no matter how fiendish of a player you may be, there's always something fresh and new for you, apparently including Halloween decorations. Oh, the enemy slugs wear Halloween costumes, Kemper. I love it. I can't get enough of it. So engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. All right, so the Girdle of Hippolyta is our second offering here. I will uh, just move right on into the publication history here. It was first published as a standalone in the UK in The Strand in July of 1940, but it was actually published first in the US in September of 1939 in The Week, and that was under a different title, The Disappearance of Winnie King. Yeah, apparently what we have continually learned is that the US is not trusted on ambiguous titles. Yeah, they definitely were not going to go with the Labors of Hercules theme in terms of standalones. Fair enough, I suppose. They definitely retitled it when it was uh, collected, as it was. We don't have to go through that again, but obviously this story too was collected both in the UK and the US within the Labors of Hercules. It is time again for our story time in my book of Greekness here. In my book, actually, the Girdle of Apollo appears just before the Horses of Diomedes. So here's how this story plays out. Eurystheus now, on the advice of Hera, sent Heracles far afield for his last four labors. He must travel way to the east and fetch back to Mycenae the golden girdle of Hippolyta, queen of the Amazons. The Amazons were a tribe of wild and warlike women who rode better and fought harder than any men. Eurystheus was sure that even Heracles would be overwhelmed by the furious women. But when Heracles arrived in Amazon land, the proud queen was so taken by the sight of his bulging muscles that she gave him her belt without a fight. 
She would gladly have given him her hand in the bargain, but Hera, in the disguise of an Amazon, spread the rumor that Heracles had come to kidnap Hippolyta. The Amazons threw themselves upon Heracles, but for once they had found their master. Heracles swung his mighty club, and the little Amazon husbands who were spinning and cooking and tending the babies were amazed to see their dangerous wives subdued by a single man. In triumph, Heracles returned to Mycenae with Hippolyta's belt. He could not bring the queen. She had been killed in the fight. I don't think that's always, by the way, how the story of the girdle of Hippolyta ends. I believe in other versions of it that Heracles marries her off to Theseus, if not others, which is also, you know, honestly more degrading. Yeah, I mean, like (laughs) misogyny all the way down here. Yes, yes. I mean, this is definitely one. You know, it's like, oh, the Amazons, you think you're so tough. Well, they meet their match in this powerful man who... uh, apparently had slim hips and uh, crisply curling hair. I mean, I have to say that the Amazons are also of the gods. Right. And so I kind of have a hard time believing that they really could not have fought off Heracles. You reject that one? I I reject this. (laughs) Well, let's see how Christy handles telling her version of the Girdle of Apollo, because that is one where I, you know, if I were sitting down to do a short story version of every single labor of Hercules, I'd be like, well, that one's interesting. Um, how are we going to handle that? And I actually think she... It elegantly, actually. She handles it very <laughs> elegantly, and it, I think it actually has a very effective reveal at the end. We'll get into it. Can you tell us about the victim, Catherine? Uh, yeah, our victim is Winnie King, as the disappearance of Winnie King, the U.S. title might have told us already. Um, she's a British schoolgirl studying in Paris, and she has gone missing from the train from London to Paris, only to reappear several days later, totally dazed, on the side of the road um, near Amiens. Great cathedral mm-hmm. there. No mention of the cathedral. I kept on expecting there to be a mention of the cathedral. I was like, no, how can no, you mention no. Amiens that many times and not mention the cathedral? No, just just the ditch. <laughs> just a ditch. Yep. Yeah. All right. In terms of suspects, we actually don't really have any suspects. And this is another one that is not so much a puzzle mystery. I'm going to argue that there's one meta clue, which uh, I will get into when it makes sense in, in the story, actually, when we're bridging over into the world as it actually is. But for now, let us get into the world as it appears to be. I also just thought that like the opening of this short story was curious because these are all told in the third person. But Mm -hmm. this one opens as though it's being narrated by Hastings, even Mm -hmm. though it, too, is in the third person. Did you feel that? I thought thought that he was going to show up in the second chapter, in part two or whatever. I thought he was going to show up because it really did read exactly like that. Yeah, it's bizarre. And I mean, my little conspiracy theory is that if these were being serialized in 1939 and 1940, she was writing Curtain around this time. We know that. She was putting it in her vault, and this really isn't a spoiler, but Curtin is actually narrated by Hastings, just like the early Poirots were, because she was hearkening back to those early Poirots. So 
you know, maybe she just almost fell into that if she was writing this on the side or something. But, you know, it just it opens up very charmingly with one thing leads to another, as Hercule Poirot is fond of saying without much originality. It's very conversational and jocular. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, is this Hastings talking? Like I, I started no, paging it re- through. It really, right? really does read like that. Yeah, it's really interesting. Just told with a lot of character. The narrator, the unseen, unspoken third person narrator here has much more character than well, it usually does. And and also the setup to it is also like I almost wonder if this was written as a Hastings story in some variant earlier because it has Jap in it too. I know. I did look it up. I did a very cursory search in the John Curran texts, the John Curran tomes for any notes about the Girdle of Apollodot. He has a main section for every story, and then he will often make references throughout the books. So I didn't look at every single reference, to be perfectly honest, but I didn't find anything along those lines. Yeah, and I was I looking remember, for exactly the same thing. Right. I don't remember reading that anywhere, but it very legitimately reads like it was written earlier. Yeah, like maybe this is one that she just kind of refashioned. And you know what? It makes sense due to... Well, because again, the elegant twist of how it fits in with the title. Yes. It could have easily... Been a different story. Been a different story. So, yes, I, you know what? I, we won't assume anything, but I think there's a, at least a fair argument to make that this is one that kind of got retweaked or refashioned or shoehorned, if you will, but elegantly and expertly shoehorned into oh, it, this collection. Oh, it 100% fits in this collection. Like, yeah. I would not at all disagree with it being here. It's just that you read it and you're just like, oh no, is this something that I've already read and I've forgotten? Yeah. Well, and what's great, too, is at the very beginning, even though this isn't a puzzle mystery, um, the narrator really does give a little clue or hint as to how this might relate to the labors of Hercules, which you're always waiting to see, you know, how that's going to work within these stories. And that's part of the fun. But we know from the beginning that Poirot took on this case, even though he didn't have much interest in it. And also, I'm quoting here from the text, and also for a certain private reason of his own, not unconnected with the classics. So you're like, okay, well, something at some point has to do with the girdle of Hippolyta here. You were told that in paragraph three, but we don't really know how until the end. And it's Which fun. Which is a little bit of her not playing fair, to be honest. Yes, yes. But she's, you know what? She's If she had done that with every story within the Labors of Hercules collection, obviously that would just be completely unfair. And Right. Although it does, it does lend itself to the explanation as to why he takes a case, which he's clearly not interested in. Yes. No, I mean, it's it's effective because you you realize like, oh, okay, well, there must be some way that this relates to the girdle of Apollo because Poirot himself, you know, in that introduction to these the, this collection, he has set out to take on 12 cases that he himself can shoehorn to right. correspond to each of these labors. Right. So we know he's looking for a reason. So yeah, it actually it just, makes it, sense it just, within the world. No, it does. Poirot. It totally does. It just, it just feels a little bit like she doesn't normally do this withholding of information like that, but she does it in this story. She just does it in this one. But like I said, if she was if she was doing it in all of them, it would be illegitimate on its face. Like you can't make an entire collection but not connect each story to the labor till the end, but you can do it with one. You can do it with one of the 12. 
Okay, so to get into the plot, Poirot's brought in by this Alexander Simpson character um, because there's been a gallery show, and during the gallery show, there were, like, protests and some other misogynists outside. Well, it seems like it was just people who were unemployed. It was a strike, essentially, right? Yeah, it's like wait, right. people who were unemployed for whatever reason, I guess due to a downturn in the economy. It made me think of, like, the Great Strike in, I think, 1925, but that's obviously too early. I'm sure there were other times of unrest. So we don't have to. Be yeah, no. So th- there, there's gallery show and they have in the show a painting by Rubens. It's small and it's cut out of its frame and it is stolen. And, and it's stolen because the people who are striking at the show create a hullabaloo, right? Mm-hmm. They basically are a distraction. And they've mm-hmm. and we learn after the fact that they've been paid to be a distraction, even though they didn't know what they were being paid for. And they're unemployed, so they obviously weren't asking too many questions. The gallerist assumes that this painting is being fenced in France to this millionaire collector who is pretty well known for acquiring art through, let's say, less than reputable means. Scotland Yard is already on this. So Poirot is like not super into being an additional hand here. But again, for reasons that will only become clear at the end, he says, okay, fine. So he's going to go to Paris to search out the painting before it's fenced. Right. He's going to go to Paris to search it out because Alexander Simpson is worried that once it actually gets out of the country, that no one's going to be able to find it. So he wants someone of Poirot's expertise to well, try right. to find and they, it and abroad. They, uh, and again, and again, he basically, they know pretty much who they think that this is going to go to. Right. So then Poirot gets a call from Inspector Jap. Yay! Inspector Jap. <laughs> Yay! Our dear Jap has heard through the grapevine that Poirot has been hired on the missing painting case, and he asks if he will consult on another case since he's going over to France. It's kind of like the, well, while you're up, <laughs> right? Um, I know. There's a well, second also, case. My, my my favorite thing about it is Paro's like, you heard about that? And Jap is like, yeah, we know that you've been hired because they don't trust Scotland Yard, but actually we might know more than people think we do. Right. Jap says, you know, I'd love to just sort of get your advice on this other case. And it's a kidnapping case. And basically what happened is that the daughter of a high-ranking church official has disappeared en route to her boarding school. That would, of course, be Winnie King. Poirot is a lot more intrigued as to this disappearance, and we'll get into the specifics of the disappearance in a moment. It is a bit of a conundrum. And just as he's about to depart for Paris, however, to pursue these two cases, Jap calls him and he tells him to never mind because Winnie King has been found. She doesn't remember anything that happened, so no one really knows exactly how she disappeared or what the whole point of any of it was, but there's no missing girl anymore. So he actually doesn't have to have anything to do with the disappearance of Winnie King. And, you know, he can just focus on this missing painting, which Poirot really, really doesn't care all that much about. Right. So Poirot, because he's literally about to go to the car when Jap calls, uh, he still goes to Paris and he immediately turns up at the police to offer his assistance to Inspector Hearn of Scotland Yard, who, suffice it to say, is a little bit surprised because, you know, he knew that Jap had said to Poirot, well, we found the girl and so we don't need you. But 
Poirot is basically saying that the story doesn't make any sense. And so we got part of the details of the story from Inspector Jap before, and then we got more of the details from Inspector Hearn. But what we know is that Winnie King was chaperoned to London to make the transfer with the schoolgirls who were all going to Miss Pope's school in Paris, which is um, like a finishing school for the arts. Which, by the way, autobiographical much? Yeah, I mean, it's a finishing school that focuses on music and art, right? And we know that Christy went to Paris to a finishing school that focused on music and the art. We talked about that in our opera-themed episode, which at this point is a year or two old. But if you haven't listened to that one, please do. It's one of my favorites that we did. Oh, it's one of my favorites by far. But in London, they're met by a Miss Bershaw who doesn't know her. And the girls don't know her. And she has her trunks with her. They're all starting school Mm -hmm. for the first time. Right. And so they do their whole train ride, et cetera, and get to know one another. And somewhere around Amia, they go back from lunch to their car. The cars are locked because they don't want people rushing to the dining car for tea before it's cleared from lunch, which is a very funny detail. And so um, the last time they saw her, she had slipped into the bathroom, the toilette, and she's never seen again. There's no stop, right? The train slows around a curve, but it doesn't slow enough for somebody to safely jump out. So there's no real way that she could have gotten off of the train, which is really the source of the bewildering disappearance here. They realize she's missing. The cars are searched, but the only people in the cars with the girls are the girls, two French businessmen, two elderly ladies going to Switzerland, And a man named James Elliott and his wife, who is apparently a lot. Let's put it like that. Flashy piece of good she was. (laughs) Right. And then Poirot just keeps asking, did they find shoes? I mean, Christy really does focus our attention on that because we we do find out that there was a hat, right? Mm -hmm. The the girl's hat was found to the side of the track. Right. In Amiens. And then he says, no, but were there shoes? And Jap is like, I don't know. And then later on, when he's talking with Inspector Hearn, he does inform him that, yes, there there was also a pair of shoes recovered at the side of the track. And Poirot was like, ah, okay. So that seems very significant to him. And I had no idea what he was getting at with that. I know. I have to say with this story, I kind of could see where it was going, but I could not figure out the shoes element. Yeah, me neither. All right, so Poirot visits Miss Pope. She's a very uh, prepossessing sort of a figure. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of parallels between this story and actually a novel we're going to cover very shortly, Cat Among the Pigeons, which is also set at an mm-hmm. all-girls school. Mm-hmm. And it has, you know, one of the major characters in it is the headmistress of the school. And Miss Pope was very much shades of Miss Bullstrode from Cat Among the Pigeons. I'm actually excited sense. for that novel. So... Poirot visits her in her office and he asks about Winnie's belongings because she had trunks with her and they were sent prior to her arrival. And they were unpacked immediately, you know, once they got onto the school premises, because that is just how things are done at Miss Pope's school. And they've been repacked now because Winnie is going home. I mean, she yes, she was recovered and she's there, but she's obviously traumatized from what happened because she knows that she was kidnapped and she has no memory of what happened to her. So that's very upsetting. 
And two different sets of French police have actually come by to pick through Winnie's belongings, and everything in them has been accounted for. And Miss Pope actually leaves it at that. But then Poirot, observant Poirot, points to a painting. And he says, surely this is a picture of the famous Cranchester Bridge with the cathedral showing in the distance. And we know that Winnie King is from Cranchester. And Miss Pope replies, you were quite right, Monsieur Poirot. Winnie had evidently painted that to bring to me as a surprise. It was in her trunk with a wrap around it and for Miss Pope from Winnie written on it. Very charming of the child. So everything in the in the trunk has been accounted for except for that painting. Poirot takes the painting off the wall And this is the point at which we're going to bridge on over into the world as it actually is. And I'm going to, I just have two clues and they're both very slight because this isn't really a puzzle mystery either. And obviously this is a disappearance story, an abduction story, I I guess I should say. Well, it is. Well, it is. But there's a crime. Yeah. There's certainly a crime that's been committed. It's and and, you know, perhaps a little bit of uh, we know that there's a missing piece of artwork, right? So it has elements of Christie Jewel heist stories Mm -hmm. and whatnot. We're definitely in that corner of the Christie verse. But first of all, we have been told that there's a character here just to throw a reference to a quote unquote flashy piece of goods. Mm -hmm. If someone is flashy, that means they might be wearing a lot of makeup, have a lot of clothes draped over their body. Maybe they wear some big hats. Just, you know, let's always be on the lookout for heavily costumed characters. Yes. Even, or perhaps especially tangential ones in a Christie novel. So I, you know, would think that we might be hearing more about that Mrs. Elliot. Let's just keep that in mind. And then secondly, for anyone who hasn't read After the Funeral, I am going to ask you to fast forward. 30 seconds. The denouement in that novel hinged on Poirot producing a painting and then scrubbing that painting off and revealing a painting underneath it. <laughs> so I know. We, By the way, this is like you know, this is like the bane of every sort of conservator's existence. Yeah. The fact that he just like goes whole hog on these paintings with like some turpentine. Yeah, no, I mean he uses turpentine in this story and I mean in, the, in that one, you know, and after the funeral he's definitely scrubbing away and I believe it's a Vermeer, right? Yes, underneath it is a Vermeer. It. And you know what, I think even in that episode we cut it for time, but we went on an extended tangent about the woman who had, quote unquote, improved the picture of Jesus, the monkey Jesus painting. Right. <laughs> a woman from Borja, Spain, whose son's day ruined a famous painting, has hired a lawyer. Cecilia Jimenez was asked to restore Echa Homo, a painting of Jesus that started out like this and was repainted like this. <laughs> and now she's seeking a cut of the profits. Here to explain is the artist herself, Cecilia Jimenez. Everybody love my painting. Now give me my money. <laughs> it's just like the defacement of precious art is really, really in an intellectual way nails on a chalkboard. Oh um, my god! Whenever we come across it's it in one of these stories, terrible. Yeah, so this is a. I already although, knew although, where this although, was going. Although, Once by he the way, took although, it off, I, in that episode, if we did not leave it in, we also talked about the fact that they restored the altar of Ghent, and it turns out the Lamb of God in the original is actually way more terrifying than the cover up. <laughs> right, but you know, once Poirot is taking the painting off the wall, I was like, oh, okay, I know where this is going. Whatever that stolen painting is, it's underneath this painting of Cranchester Bridge, and again, we are never told what the name of that painting is, are we? 
No. And we're actually Mm. never told what it is exactly. We're told what the contents of it are because Poirot's little uh, rag trick here, rag and chemicals, by the way, in an enclosed office, I'm sure that that was like not eye-watering at all. (laughs) He shows uh, Miss Pope the painting and uh, guess what painting it is, Kemper? I think it might be a painting of the girdle of Hippolyta. Oh, by Rubens? By Rubens, yep. Yeah, and it's apparently very flashy. Yeah, I mean, I think that we're supposed to believe the painting's actually called The Girdle of Hippolyta. Right. And yes, this is what Poirot says. A great work of art made to de même, not quite suitable for your drawing room. And then Miss Pope blushes, and Christy describes the picture. Hippolyta's hand was on her girdle. She was wearing nothing else. Hercules had a lion's skin thrown lightly over one shoulder. The flesh of Rubens is rich, voluptuous flesh, <laughs> dot, 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 dot. Miss Pope has to, like, regain her poise, and she says... A fine work of art, all the same, as you say. After all, one must consider the susceptibilities of parents. Some of them are inclined to be narrow, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I, I kind of feel like Christy's almost hanging a lantern on the fact that this is the only way that she can successfully work the girdle of Hippolyta into one of these stories. She's like, I don't have much to work with here, so <laughs> this was my best avenue. But and I think you know it's a really it's good, good one. It's really it's good. good. It's very clever and I really appreciate how it's sort of maneuvered into this. Yeah, no, it's a, it's an effective reveal, but what is going on here, Catherine? Why is Rubens is the girdle uh, of, of Hippolyta on Miss Pope's wall masquerading as a terrible picture uh, by Winnie King who was abducted but doesn't remember how she was abducted and then returned? Wh- what happened? Okay, so the art thieves, which is the case that Poirot was originally hired to solve they stole the Rubens then they grabbed Winnie in transit across London they drugged her and then they hid her somewhere presumably in London for a few days then one of their accomplices dressed up in ugly braids and braces she has dental braces a dental plate a dental plate and joined the rest of the girls going to Miss Pope's They hide the Rubens in her trunks because they know that Miss Popes is famous. Plenty of wealthy British schoolgirls do this every semester and that the authorities are not going to search the girls' trunks. So they're hiding the painting in there. So this accomplice, she, on the train, in the bathroom, switches over her clothing to put on, like, a fur coat and red lipstick, rips out the, like, fake braids, whatever. And then she becomes the wife of James Elliot. And so the one thing that she can't, like, shove in a ball and hide if they're going to search the compartments are the shoes and the hat. So she throws them out the window. Which is a little, I guess... I guess you can't hide a pair of shoes and a hat. I don't know. I mean, I just feel like you'd just be like, those are my shoes. <laughs> right. Although, I mean, everyone's bags are presumably in these these separate compartments. So you only have on the, the train with you a bag that maybe has some reading material in it and like some cosmetics and stuff like that. You know, it is sort of like, well, why do you have this extra pair of ugly shoes right. and a hat that you don't want to wear because now you're all flashy and fashionable? It tracks. It's fine. It's just, it's one of those where you're like, okay, I'll go along. Well, with that. The, the bigger, you know? the bigger tracking issue, I don't mean to pick nits, but I'm going to. 
is that faux Winnie goes into the loo to change over, but she comes out in full fur coat and makeup. Where was the fur coat and where was the makeup and where was that being stashed? Yeah, this is what they say she dresses up in when she becomes Mrs. Elliot. Sheer silk stockings, high-heeled shoes, a mink coat to cover a school uniform, a daring little piece of velvet called a hat perched on her curls, and a face, oh yes, a face, rouge, powder, lipstick, mascara. What is the real face of that quick change artiste really like? Probably only the good God knows. And then right. she's so, so they have to disguise. Throw, but yeah, they have to you, throw sure. the shoes out the window of the train. But somehow she has a full-length mink coat, high heels, a hat, and a makeup case. Well, you know, maybe those things were stashed away in the bathroom, in the toilette. It's just that once, obviously, the disappearance alarm was raised, there couldn't be anything in the train because they obviously knew that it was going to be searched, but it wasn't going to be searched before then. But who got it on the train? Presumably Mr. Elliot, right? I mean, Mr. Elliot is pretending to have a wife. He's obviously in on it. So there's been a man who's been on the tr- a passenger Yeah, I mean, I suppose, he could, I suppose he could have been holding his wife's coat over his arm or something the whole time. Yeah. Or he could have had a big, a big lumpy bag he brought on and he stuffed it behind the toilet. She knew which one to go into. And then once she was done changing, though, she knew she had to get rid of anything extra because once the police were actually searching, which they wouldn't do until after, you know, people realized she was gone, there couldn't be anything there. There are always ways around these things, Christy. I guess. I mean, I do find that I I find that a little iffy. (laughs) Yeah. Or at the very least, that could have been part of the explanation. Right. Right. As to how they pull it off. It was worth including that in the explanation. Anyway, fair, fair yeah, knit. Right. Anyway, um, <laughs> poor Winnie's been drugged out of her mind in some holding place. Who knows where? Probably London, it seems to be implied. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once they get to the end of their ropes on this whole plot, they just dump her at the side of the road in Amiens. And presumably they were slightly foiled, right, by the fact that Miss Pope hung the painting up right. on the wall. Although if Poirot hadn't figured it out, eventually they would have come back and probably just lifted it off of the wall and been on their way. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's nice to know that Winnie is maybe not that bad of an artist because apparently the painting is just abominable. I know. Here, it look good. Why everybody's so mad at me? Everybody's so angry. Right, and she put it up. She was like, oh, well, you know, it's a student. She, she's trying. But yes, let's not impugn Winnie's reputation as an artist because she obviously did not actually do that painting. <laughs> no. You know, for a second, for a hot second, I thought that Miss Pope was in on it. In a way, she was maybe the one suspect. In this whole story. Well, you know, by the way, by the way, we don't know that she's not, you know, it's perhaps a little suspicious that she did choose to hang up this abominable painting and that it was just sitting there. Although that would also be pretty foolish of her to display it when she could have just shoved it in a corner somewhere. But um, although you'd have to make a real leap to guess that the stolen painting of a Rubens in London was related to a hideous oil painting by a schoolgirl in Paris. True. Fortunately, Monsieur Poirot was born to make those leaps. <laughs> and then, because Christy just can't help herself, there's a final little section in which Poirot is leaving the school, and he's overwhelmed by all of the girls 
at the school. And Christy writes, Mon Dieu, here indeed is the attack by the Amazons. And they all crowd around him and start clamoring for his autograph. They want him to write his name in their autograph books. <laughs> well, you know what I like most about both of these stories is that actually we didn't mention it in The Horses of Diomedes, but it happens there too, where Poirot mentions his name to Sheila. And basically the third person narrator is like, well, some people in these days did not appreciate who Hercule Poirot was. Which was another very Hastings thing to say, by the way. Absolutely. But she does. She immediately, her eyes widen because she immediately knows who he is. And then in this one, the schoolgirls all are trying to get his autograph. And this is where, you know, we can see that these stories were written in 1939 slash 1940. I mean, this is not too many years after the ABC murders when he's a national rock star of a private detective. So yeah, we're not in the same place where we are in the novels currently as we're going through them, which is definitely old, old Poirot, who is barely remembered by fellow olds. Well, I mean, like, think about the the fact that we're more than 15 years later where we are in novels, right? Oh, yeah. And so think about even in our time, 15 years ago would have been 2005. It's another world, Catherine. Yeah, another world. On that note, I think we are done with the horses of Diomedes and the girdle of Hippolyta. We will be covering two more of these labors of Hercules at some point in the near future. And those are actually our final two. I'm sad to say. I know. And stay tuned because I'm very excited to report that in the very next one, the flock of Gerion, that features one of our favorite characters from the first of these labors, the Nemean lion, Miss Amy Carnaby, makes a reappearance. Very exciting. I can't wait. Next time... We have a special guest, don't we? We have an extremely special guest. Anthony Horowitz, author, producer, screenwriter extraordinaire, who we have referenced in so many different ways on this podcast and in so many different episodes. We had the honor to sit down with him over Zoom, of course, because it's 2020, and have just the most lovely conversation. And we are so excited to finally uh, share it with our listeners. If you want to get prepared for it, for our UK listeners, his newest book, Moonflower Murders, is already out in the UK. And for our US listeners, it will be available uh, for your reading pleasure at the beginning of November. Absolutely. Yeah, we talk about a lot of different things in this interview, but that is the focus of sorts, Moonflower Murder, since that is his latest book. We would love to hear from you if you have any thoughts on the labors of Hercules or anything else. First of all, you can get more episodes and more content on our Patreon site. So go on over to www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha to check out those. You can email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at All About the Dame. You can find Catherine on Twitter at Brobcat. Our Instagram handle is All About Agatha, and our Facebook page is All About Agatha. And please take a moment to give us a rating or review if you have not done so already. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.